like to hear Jesus preach and teach? I'm sort of a fan of good preaching. I like good preaching. So I would absolutely love to have been there on a Galilean hillside and have Jesus explain the Old Testament to me. I think there's probably nothing I would like more than for that to happen. But as you think about Christ's preaching, if you had to summarize his preaching, what you read in the Gospels, if you had to say this was the subject of Christ's preaching, don't look at the screen. What topic do you think he addressed more than any other? That's the question that you want to ponder. And I think that question, as you'll see on the screen, is very, very clear. The answer to that question is very clear. Scripture tells us without a doubt what the main subject of Jesus' preaching was over and over again. And it's the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And that may surprise you when you think about it that way. We just started a series last week called Gospel Basics. And over the next few weeks, that series is going to take us through Mark chapter 1. And the whole series is really going to kind of form an introduction to the Gospel of Mark for us. And each week, there's going to be a key word uh, in our series that we're going to highlight. Last week was the word fulfillment. And this week, it's the word kingdom. And each one of these words is going to highlight a particular aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of these key words, you probably don't associate with the gospel necessarily. And you don't think about these words when you think about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I would say this morning that you cannot fully understand the ministry of Jesus Christ. You can't understand his teaching or the gospel message without having some level of understanding of this topic of the kingdom because of the way Mark introduces this topic and describes Christ's preaching as being centered on the kingdom of God. So today we're going to be introduced to this idea of the kingdom, and it will be just that, an introduction. And with the the kingdom being introduced to the kingdom, we're going to be introduced to the king who rules over his kingdom. And so today, if we're going to summarize what we're talking about from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, we're going to see two appeals of the kingdom that demand our attention. Two appeals of the kingdom that demand our attention. And the first one of those you can see on the screen there, it's to recognize the king's identity. Recognize the king's identity. This is a demand that the kingdom makes on us. You have to recognize the king's identity. So if you remember last week, we uh, talked through Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and we saw in that, that section that God sent a messenger, John the Baptist, who declared that God was returning to his people. So John comes, he tells the people, look, God is coming back to you And so the response for that is you need to be ready for his return. So the announcement is God's coming. Now look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came. God's coming. In those days, Jesus came. There's a very clear connection here between the ministry of John the Baptist and the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now in this text here in verses 9 through 11, this is 
commonly call John's or Jesus's baptism. Jesus obviously didn't need to repent of his sins because he didn't have any sins to repent of, but he comes to John and there's a very clear connection between John as the forerunner and Jesus as the one who is promised, as the one who's coming. And so Jesus comes to John to be baptized by him. And he does this to show that connection with John's ministry and also to identify with those who he came to save, to show solidarity with them in their sinfulness and in their plight, to ultimately show that he would be the substitute for them. That's why he came to John to be baptized. But I I want you to notice here in verses 9 through 11, if you're reading through this, your, your Bible probably has a a heading that says the baptism of Jesus or something like that, mine does. But this passage is really not about the baptism of Jesus. It's about what happens after Jesus is baptized. It's almost a casual mention of Jesus being baptized. And then in verses 10 and 11, John goes into, or Mark goes into great detail about what happens after Jesus is baptized. And there's three different events that happen in quick succession after Christ is baptized. And all three of those events declare to us the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is it that comes? Mark 1.9 says Jesus came. So who is this? Who's coming? Who is this guy who has arrived on the scene? Verses 10 and 11 tell us exactly who this is. But you have to read carefully. You have to read closely. The first event is found in verse 10. Look there with me. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now you may read that and just kind of skip over it there, but the word that is translated torn here is a very unique word. This word is used two times in the Gospel of Mark. And if you're a good Bible student, you can probably guess where the other time that this word is used is. It's used in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, and it's used when the veil of the temple is torn in two at the death of Jesus Christ. When the temple veil was torn in two, that showed us that the way of communion between humanity and the divine, between God and sinful human beings, had been opened through the death of Jesus Christ. And so here, when this word is used, it tells us that God has arrived on the scene to dwell with his people. Heaven and earth are coming together here. And that's why Mark uses this word to show us God has arrived on the scene. The king had come. But that's not all that this word shows us and this little incident here shows us. There's an Old Testament background to the heavens being torn open. And I want to show you this Old Testament background. Remember, Last week, we talked a lot about Isaiah, the last part of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66. And I told you that that portion of the book of Isaiah is God promising to come to his people, to comfort his people. They'd been in exile. They'd been filled with sin. And God says, it's not always going to be like that. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to bring comfort. I'm going to redeem you. He promised to do them good. Well, near the end of that section, there's this really interesting portion where God and Isaiah are sort of going back and forth verbally. Isaiah will say something and then God will say something. And in that section, Isaiah 
makes this plea to God to come and save the people. It's like Isaiah has been listening to God from chapters 40 all the way to 63. He's been listening to God say, I'm going to do good to you. And it's like Isaiah gets to the point where he's like, okay, do good to us. Come return to your people. I want this to happen. And I want to show you that text this morning. Go back to Isaiah chapter 63. We're going to read a few verses at the end of this here. Hold your finger in Mark. Isaiah 63. We're going to start in verse 15. This is Isaiah pleading with the Lord. Look at this. Look down from heaven and see from your holy habit and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And then look at Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would, that's the word, tear, rend the heavens and come down. That's Isaiah's plea. And so when you get to Mark chapter 1 here, and Mark says the heavens were torn open at the baptism of Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah's plea and Isaiah's expectation. God has kept his promise and the king has arrived on the scene. That's only the first event after Christ's baptism. Look with me back at Mark chapter 1. Look what it says next. The heavens were torn open. God had arrived. Heaven and earth had been brought together in the coming of Christ and the spirit descending on him like a dove. This doesn't mean that at this particular moment, Jesus was a man before and he became divine at this moment. But we talked a lot last week about what the spirit indicates in the Old Testament. And what this means here is that Jesus is specially empowered for the mission that God has given him. Of course, later, Christ is going to bestow the Spirit on those who follow him, on his people. But at this point, he is controlled and he is empowered by the Spirit. He is walking in communion with God. There's one more event here. Look down at verse 11. And a voice came from heaven and it said this, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Notice specifically what God says here. You are my beloved son. My question for you is, what is God indicating when he says that Jesus is his son? I know that's very common language for us. If you read your Bible, you know that Jesus is often called God's son. But what is is that indicating to us? Sometimes we hear that and we assume we know what it means and we sort of read it in this kind of abstract theological way that it means that Jesus is divine and he's related to God and he's one with God. And and all of that is true, no doubt, but there's a background to being called God's son that is incredibly significant. And I think this is what God is getting at here when he says this, 
And this is why Mark records this here. Did you know that the whole idea of Jesus as God's son is taken from the Old Testament expectation of a coming king? It's specifically talking about a Davidic king who's going to come. And so that fills in when God says this here, this is my son. He's indicating something to us about who Jesus is and his royalty and his kingship. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Just a moment here. I want to read through this with you. Psalm chapter 2. I think this is one of the passages that forms the background for Jesus being called God's son. Now, remember this morning, obviously, we're talking about the kingdom. Okay, so that's the main topic. We're talking about the kingdom, and we're talking about God's king reigning over his kingdom, bringing his kingdom. And if you're familiar with Psalm 2, you know right away that what's happening here is mankind's rebelling against God and his authority. So they don't want God to be their king, right? Look at verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to submit to God's authority and God's word. They see it as restrictive, confining, and they don't want anything to do with it. So how does God respond to this type of rebellion? I love this. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Love it. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And here's what he does in response to human rebellion. Look at this. Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does God do in response to human autonomy and rebellion? He puts a king, a human king, in Zion. And now look at verse 7. This is amazing. The king responds to Yahweh's words and tells us what Yahweh says to him. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He will have authority. God's Son will have authority, and he will reign as king. So what do we do with this? When God's Son shows up on the scene, when he has the authority, when he's the king, how should we respond? Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Don't be foolish. Don't be an idiot. (laughs) Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And I love how this ends. Blessed, flourishing are all who take refuge in him. That's our response to the king. We take refuge in him. And so all of that forms the background here in Mark chapter 1 for when God says, this is my beloved son. He's my king who I've installed and he will reign. And your response is to take refuge and kiss the son. Don't be foolish. 
give him the authority that he deserved. So God the Father declares Jesus, his son, the divine king, to whom he's given dominion and authority. And notice what else he says about his son in Mark chapter 1. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God the Father is pleased with his son. He delights in his son. The other times that God says this are at the transfiguration, and then he shows his delight in his son when he raises him from the dead after punishing him for paying, by paying for our sins on the cross. So he delights in his son. Now, this is so important for you and I to consider this morning. This is so important for how you and I approach God. Because when you read about the king's authority and the way we should respond, it's, it's scary. It's intimidating. He is going to rule with a rod of iron. He has power and great might. And so what are we to do with that? How do we respond to that? God is always pleased with his son and nothing can change that. And when you and I are united with his son, then we receive that pleasure from God as well. We move from being confronted with God's wrath, with his divine judgment. We move from that to a place where we are treated just like Jesus Christ. He delights in us. He rejoices over us. He takes great pleasure in us despite our frailty, our sinfulness, and our wickedness. Just like Jesus identified with his people in baptism, we can be identified with Christ and have God's delight and pleasure on us. And so that's why why it's so vital for you and I to immerse ourselves in the person and work of Christ, to think day after day about Christ and who he is. That's who God takes pleasure in. And as you and I are united to him, as we live out that union with Christ, you can be confident that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ because you are covered with his righteousness and God the Father takes pleasure in you. So, verses 9 to 11, Jesus comes as the true king, the son who is promised in the Old Testament and who the father takes great delight in, who's empowered by the Holy Spirit. But notice in verses 12 and 13, what happens next, what the spirit does with Jesus. And this will further help us to learn of his identity as the king. Verses 12 and 13, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I'm sure that you are very aware of the temptation stories in Matthew and Luke. And those temptation stories are a little bit longer than this one. Mark goes pretty skimpy on the details here. All right. And so there's a temptation when you study the Gospels to read this and be frustrated with Mark and say, "Ah, Mark. Why didn't you tell us more? I mean, look at Matthew and Luke. They really told us a lot of details, okay? Well, don't give in to that temptation too quickly. Instead, ponder and think, okay, why would Mark have only given us this much about the temptation? What is he trying to communicate? What what angle is he trying to give us on Christ's temptation that maybe Matthew and Luke don't give us? 
It's like a diamond that we want to see from all these different angles. And Mark's giving us a particular angle here that he wants us to think through. So what is he telling us about Christ's temptation? Well, there's a couple things we can learn about Jesus's identity through this. First of all, he doesn't really describe Jesus having victory here. I mean, you sort of get the sense, you know, the angels are ministering to him, but really what Mark describes here is a conflict between Jesus and Satan. That's what he's highlighting here. And so when you think through the ministry of Christ, when you read about the ministry of Christ in the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see conflict, and particularly conflict of the spiritual variety. And so Mark is telling us by writing it this way, look, this king is going to come up against conflict and opposition. And of course, he's going to end up ruling and reigning, but he's going to come up against opposition. And so you're going to see that throughout the book of Mark. So you learn that about Christ's kingdom, his kingship, and his identity. But another thing you learn about this is notice in verse 12 and verse 13, he says a couple of times that he was in the wilderness and that he was in the wilderness for 40 days. He was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And I think Mark is alluding back to Israel's time in the wilderness for 40 years, being tempted by Satan, tempted to complain, tempted to disobey. We've already seen that Jesus identifies with his people in baptism. And I think Mark is getting at here that Christ identifies with his people in temptation here as well. And ultimately, we do learn from Matthew and Luke that Jesus overcomes this temptation, but he represents his people as a good king and wins the victory over Satan on their behalf. And I think that's what Mark's getting at here. So throughout the book of Mark, we'll see Jesus as Israel's king representing them and overcoming Satan on their behalf. That's what his mission looks like. That's what his kingdom will involve. So... We've seen the identity of the king, the son of God. He's going to battle Satan. He's going to represent his people as the beloved son of God. And it's that description that's going to carry us through the rest of the book, the gospel of Mark. But now we want to look at our second appeal of the kingdom here. We recognize the king's identity. Who is this who has come? And then we want to respond to the king's proclamation, to the kingdom's proclamation here in verses 14 and 15. This is where we get a summary of Christ's preaching, right? This is, in a nutshell, what Jesus went around preaching. It sets the stage for the rest of the gospel of Mark. This is what he mainly taught, and so this is pretty significant for us to understand. He basically came and told the people, the kingdom of God is upon you, and you need to respond to the arrival of God's kingdom. Let me read verses 14 and 15, and we'll go back through and explain them a little bit. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. You can see in verse 14 there at the end, he uses that word gospel again. It's good. It's good news. So what's the good news? What is Jesus tell? What's he preaching to these people? What is he telling them? What was he going around Galilee explaining to people who were listening to him? 
It's interesting to think that when we normally use the word gospel, we mean, and rightfully so, this is how Paul uses the word gospel, we mean the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as an atonement for sin, for our sin. And that's accurate. That's true. But that's not what Jesus was preaching here when he talks about the good news. He's actually talking about a much bigger picture of the work of God in the world here. He's proclaiming something, or when we think gospel, it's not the same as what Christ was preaching here because that hadn't happened yet. So he wasn't telling people, I'm dying for your sins and going to arise from the dead. He gets to that much later in the gospel of Mark. So his message here has two parts to it. Look at verse 15. The first part, the time is fulfilled. So he's telling people that the time has been fulfilled. He's essentially saying, look, God's purposes and plans are coming to fruition now. The decisive moment in human history has been reached. He's telling them that what the Old Testament prophets expected and predicted is coming to pass right now. God is bringing comfort and restoration and rule to his people. It's what we saw back in verses 2 and 3 where Isaiah and Malachi are quoted. Jesus is saying those expectations are happening now. The biblical story is reaching its climax. But there's a second part to his preaching that goes with the time being fulfilled, and it's in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or has drawn near. These two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Jesus is telling you this is happening now, and he's saying the kingdom is here. He's not telling them the kingdom is drawn close, but it's not quite here yet. And maybe someday it'll be here. Now, it's not fully here yet when Christ is preaching this. But he's telling them the time is fulfilled. The kingdom in him and in his authority and in his preaching and in his miracles has arrived to them. Now, we don't see God. We don't see Christ reigning over everything at the present time, right? So there is an aspect of the kingdom that is future and that is to be expected that's coming later. But Jesus is essentially telling them God's rule and reign is beginning to advance now in the arrival of Jesus Christ. So what are we talking about when we talk about his kingdom? I mean, it's a huge biblical concept. Like we said, this is the subject of Christ's preaching. So what are we talking about? Well, in some ways, uh, it's going to take a lot more than just today to unfold what the kingdom reality is in the gospel of Mark. But I do want to just give you some introductory comments on this, and then you'll see it more as we go through the Gospel of Mark. But God's kingdom is, is the realm where he rules and reigns. And it's the realm where he rules and reigns through Jesus, and that realm is breaking into human history at this point. It's breaking into human history at this decisive moment. That's what Jesus is telling them. God's authority is being realized through me and through my preaching. If you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, God had told Adam and Eve to do something particular, to take dominion, to have authority, to reign over the earth. And mankind had rebelled against that. Adam and Eve had sinned. They had 
thought they knew better than God. They had taken their own authority and thought we're going to reign on our own out from under God's authority and rule. They wanted to be autonomous in every way. And since that time, human beings have tried very desperately to be autonomous and out from under God's rule, authority, and reign. And so in the Old Testament, God ruled over his people. They bucked against his authority and against his rule and reign. But he had promised them that a king would come who would realize that authority and who would reign over his people. And this kingdom and this authority would not just be a political entity, although that would be true in the Messianic kingdom. And so throughout the Gospel of Mark, you see Jesus confronting evil. You see his miracles, and his miracles aren't just him doing this to prove that he's powerful. His miracles are showing you what his kingdom is like. His kingdom, his rule and reign is a place where things are made right, where people aren't sick and broken. His kingdom is a place where good triumphs over evil. It's a place where things are made right. One author described it this way. Jesus's message is that in his own person and mission, God has invaded human history and has triumphed over evil, even though the final deliverance will occur only at the end of the age. And so it's like there's this beginning of the kingdom now, and you'll see in some of the parables this advancement of the kingdom, and then ultimately it'll be realized one day. So Jesus here is claiming authority and sovereignty over people's hearts and lives. That's what he's doing. And he's telling them that they must respond appropriately. Look back at verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand, and here's the response. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's how one author described this response. In essence, Jesus' announcement of the messianic rule of God challenges human self-will and autonomy. It makes the announcement of God's claim on his creation. This is the essence of the confrontation that each of us wrestle with day in and day out. Is it not? I want what I want. My heart is like a neurotic little God that wants what it wants and doesn't want what God wants. And even after salvation, we struggle with this so often. You and I are born with this deep-seated conviction that we, that I am the center of the universe and of reality. We still struggle with that. And the Christian life is the journey of constantly repenting of that belief of my self-will and submitting my self-will to Christ's kingly claim on my life. That's what sanctification is. And so that's why Jesus says here, repent and believe. There's an initial aspect of that. And then this is what what the Christian looks like. Christian life looks like day in and day out. How do I submit to his claims and live as a citizen of his kingdom? I repent of my autonomy, of my desire to be the God of my own life. I turn from the belief that I'm the hub of everything that exists And I begin to recognize and realize that Christ is the center. He's the climax of the biblical story. He's the one that rules and reigns over everything. Repent and believe. 
This is not just something that happens at the moment of salvation, although it certainly is that. This is the way that you make progress in the Christian life. Repent and believe. Today, repent and believe. Repent of autonomy and believe the claims that Christ has on your life. Repent of trying to manage the universe by being anxious and worrisome and thinking you have to figure out all the what-ifs. Repent of that and believe that Jesus reigns over all and he is working all things together for your good. Repent of the pursuit of sexual pleasure outside of God's good design and believe, turn from that and believe that God has provided every good thing for you and he will not withhold what is good and is helpful to you. Repent and believe. Repent of overwhelming guilt and despair at your sin and believe that you are loved by God because you are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He looks at you and he sees his son. He delights in that. So repent and believe. Repent of gossip and slander. And believe that God's plan for you is to build up others in the church body. Repent and believe. So when confronted by Christ's kingdom, by his authority, by who he is, our response is to humbly submit to that authority and then believe in the good authority that he has, the good news that his reign is full of grace and truth and provision for us. He is a king who will give us all that we need every single day. He will provide for us. And so really here, the kingdom, it says at the end, repent and believe in the gospel, believe in the goodness of Christ, believe he's a good king, believe he provides, believe he's gracious, believe he loves you, believe those things believe in the gospel and enjoy the grace that he offers to you today. Let's pray. Father, we're we're amazed at your grace to us. We are hardly deserving of your goodness, Lord. We look at our own lives and we see the desire to be autonomous, We see the desire to be the center of the universe. We see the desire to run our own lives according to our standards and our will. And yet you offer your authority, which is a good and a gracious authority, if we will repent and believe in who you are and the reign that Christ offered. And so I pray for each one in here, Lord. I don't know all the different circumstances. I don't know what people are struggling with, but I pray this morning that you would identify in each heart maybe one area where we are holding on to our sinful thinking, our sinful desires. Give us the grace we need to repent of that, to turn from that, and to turn to the good king, the gracious king. Turn to the good news of the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ. Rely on him and delight in his authority, his claims on Thank you for your work. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name.